What's up, everybody? This is Scott Lease and my good friend Richard Harris. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are here today with Blake Johnson, CEO and founder of Outbound View. And he comes to us courtesy of our friend James Bodden. Good recommendation for a, a guest on the show. And we're looking forward to uh, learning about your business a little bit, Blake, and, and learning from you. So thanks for joining us today. And if it's Absolutely. Up, thanks for coming on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell everybody a little bit about, um, you know, Outbound View and, and what you guys do and and what the, the sales cycle is like and that kind of stuff. So people have the, you know, some context for the conversation. For sure. So outbound view, I mean, we focus on top of funnel sales strategies, most of which relate to inside sales. So we do outsource sales development. We'll do intent data. Uh, we have a lot of different programs around kind of lead gen, but all kind of sit at top of the top of the sales funnel. Um, so for us, I mean, it's interesting. We have an outbound company, but we don't really do outbound for it because it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't make sense in our environment and from my perspective. So we've spent a ton of time on inbound, on other things, getting leads kind of coming to us on a regular basis. And from a, you know, what the sales cycle looks like, it's sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks. I mean, they're really fast when clients are coming to us looking for, you know, outsourcing inside sales or other other portions of their business. So as, as somebody who has built and scaled a bazillion inside sales organizations and sales organizations, why, why would somebody choose to outsource their sales org or their SDR team or things like that? Why not, you know, what's the advantage versus doing it uh, internally? I'm, I'm curious. Well, most shouldn't, you know, I would like, <laughs> Most of the Hi. people that we that we talk to, uh, I'm pushing them not to because there's only a few instances where it makes sense, right? The first instance is, you know, you don't have the management capabilities to really build an inside sales function or to watch it. So maybe you're scaling quick, trying to experiment and someone can come in and do it faster. So that's, you know, number one. The second big instance is we've figured it out. And we really just need people, right? We need more bodies. We need more calls. We need more emails, those types of things. You know, if you don't fall into one of those two buckets, uh, normally you, sh I think you should be doing it internally if you can. Um, so a lot of what we do when people come to us is play fractional CMO. It's like, if I was you, outsource inside sales probably doesn't solve this. In some instances it does, but it's, you know, a lot of people think it's super easy and it's a quick win. And, it's, not, it's just not always the case. Well, that's the biggest thing I see is that people come to organizations like yours and they think it's turnkey, right? They're like, oh, let's just call them and they can just start doing stuff. <laughs> What's it really take? And this is not meant to be a, a plug for, for, for your organization, um, but educationally, what does it really take when someone comes to you? It is the right fit. You know, is it a 30-day ramp? Is it a 60-day? Have you guys figured out the sweet spot of we can get this turned around in a week? Um, yeah. Our, it depends. I mean, most of our implementations start at two weeks. But our whole thing is in the first two weeks, we have to build out experiments. So we need to build out five to six experiments, whether that's language or personas or industries. Most people that come to us are like, we target VPs of sales. 
It's like, well, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of those. So we really got to narrow it down. So for us, it's how quickly can we build experiments and start to build some type of equation behind the outreach after that, meaning how often is this persona picking up the phone or answering emails and so those types of things. Yeah. So in a, in a business world, right? Like, so that's your onboarding. It's two weeks to onboard. What's yep. it, you know, what does it take to be ramped? Right. Yep. And, and granted that could be different with each client, right. Depending on the sales cycle and, and stuff like that. But, you know, again, I'm just trying to educate people like this is what the expectation should be. Like, think about it this way. If you're yep. looking at your, if you're at this stage, cause I, I, it wouldn't surprise me as things start to turn back on, they might come to outsourcing first before hiring in some cases. For sure. I mean, we see like between that six and eight week mark, if we're doing a good job on experiments up front and we're documenting what is working and what isn't working, then we should be killing what isn't, scaling what is. And so you should start to see it take off a little bit. I think a lot of people miss with outsourced is that you usually do get low hanging fruit. Like the first time through a couple lists, like you set meetings, right? It's that second and third time and really narrowing in on the personas where it starts to get a little bit more difficult. Have you guys, how is your setup? Have you been remote? Were you in the office and had to, had to shift? We've always been remote. You've always yeah, been I mean, remote. Yeah. So, so this is my, this is my question to you. Cause I thought, I thought that that was the case. And I've been getting this question a lot. It's like, how are you training and onboarding your sales team effectively in a remote, you know, virtual kind of environment? I think that is one of the things, not, maybe not the most, you know, uh, scary thing that people are dealing with. But I think that's one of the things that, that people are, are nervous about. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, you, you talk about that. Yeah, it's, it's really tough, right? I mean, for us onboarding like a new rep, but keep in mind, we're like a boutique niche small, so we don't have 20 reps, right? Like we're, we're a small team, but we do a lot of our consulting clients, we help them onboard and we just try and focus in on the first handful of weeks, just purely in a couple areas, right? It's like getting to know the buyer, getting to know the fundamentals of inside sales, which is like, how do you write messaging? How do you write things that people care about at an eighth grade level? You know, cold calling fundamentals, some of those types of things, but it's a constant, here's how I would do it. Here's how I would recommend you do it. Go do some research, do it on your own. Let's get back. I mean, it's just, it's constant. Let's get back and check, check and see how things are going. Um, but it's way tougher. Like it, it's so much easier when it's in person. So what is that? So when you do train somebody, and by the way, if we hear a turkey, it's because I'm sitting outside today and they're gone <laughs> in the backyard. Um, they're wild. Um, what does that look like, though, if you're trying to build a program? And may, maybe because you don't have to do this a lot, but maybe you just innately, you know, what advice would you give? Hey, I got to hire three reps. They're all coming on board next Monday, right? They're coming on Monday, June 1st, June 2nd. Here's how I would recommend you try to onboard them in a remote world. Yep. I mean, as much as you can play the, you know, not play the, we're going to figure it out card, the better, right? So uh, like we're going through this with a, a consulting client of ours. They're onboarding two, two reps right now. James and I are kind of uh, running this onboarding. 
And the first two weeks are just completely focused on the customer. You know, these are uh, kids where it's their first job out of college. And so we're in this world, it's compliance. What does a compliance professional do? What does a VP of compliance think about? What does a chief compliance officer think about? Um, but you have to build a, a playbook, like a very specific playbook of who are we going after and what do they care about? And then the second piece is the playbook around all of the little follow-ups that happen. So we make a hundred calls, let's say, or we send a bunch of emails. Like, what do we do if somebody clicks? What do we do on opens? What do we do in all these little instances? And what we've found has, has worked best is daily standups and setting very, very specific goals on here's what you're doing for the day until they get to a place where they're comfortable. Um, and I don't know, we just, we, I haven't had the experience of bringing on a ton of inside reps who it's their third inside sales job. You know, most of what we've done is it's new, completely new to sales, completely new to inside sales. You have to start with the basics. You mean you have, you do have though the unique perspective, at least I think it's unique of coming from a sales background while running a, you know, startup tech company. Um, this is something that has fascinated me for, for years, kind of the differences um, in, the, in the discipline, domain expertise that founders have. What do you think are one or two advantages that you have as a, as a CEO because you come from a sales background? And maybe what are one or two of the, the disadvantages that somebody from a sales background would have as a, a founder and CEO? For sure. So my like background in sales, I was always so much better at the prospecting side than the closing side. Like I was a average to above average outside salesperson, but like loved the prospecting. I always thought it was so easy. So it kind of makes sense why I'm here and why, why we're doing outbound view. Uh, I don't know. I, I actually default my bigger, personally, my bigger problem is I have a marketing background, right? Like we can spin things up and get landing pages and do paid advertising and run everything in a matter of, of days. And so a lot of what we do is just spend all day experimenting and trying new things. And that's something that I'm trying to work through versus staying really focused on what we, you know, what exactly we're doing and what our exact offerings are. I mean, from a sales perspective, I, uh, it, it helps me a lot to think through, especially with the inside sales teams that we're working with, as well as the outside sales teams on part of the problem is getting the meeting. But, you know, from the point that they say, yes, I want to meet to the point the meeting happens. And after we do as much coaching with the, our clients on what that actually looks like as we do on finding the opportunities, like they kind of expect that we'll find the opportunities and they want to hear from us, like what happens once it's set? How do we get people to show, you know, how do we kick off calls and some of those things? So I just having a sales background there and dealing with other outsourced clients kind of helps me coach our clients to make sure the meetings we set actually turn into pipeline. What, what, a, what were you like as the kid growing up? Were you always a sales guy hustling, you know, I was hawking candy and shit like that. Uh, Scott was too busy playing sports or, you know, being a, a degenerate selling other stuff later in his life. I I was. I, I was walking around selling, you know, selling candy and pop and everything like that as well. It's weird. 
most people that I hear that get into sales kind of stumbled into it. Like I liked marketing when I was in college and I got a marketing degree, but like the sales jobs were the only jobs I looked for out of college. Like my dad was in sales. It was something that I kind of knew I wanted to do. It was something that I thought I would, you know, be, be good at. And that was my first job and pretty much every job outside of kind of marketing or founder that, you know, that I've had since. And what were, what were some of, do you remember your first sale, like in the professional world? It's a fun question to ask. What was your first sale as a, as a professional? Uh, so I got a job out of college and it was, oh, it was, I remember, you know, like I, you had to wear a suit. Not only did you have to wear a suit, but you also had to wear a white shirt at this company that I was working at. Like, I was selling, I oh yeah. I was selling advertising. My manager was the, just a mess. She was just, uh, just the worst manager ever. But um, like I immediately got in there and like during college, I was working through college, worked in like a warehouse, did other things. And so I kind of thought it was easy. I was like, you just, I don't know, you just start calling people. Um, and I do, I remember, I remember the very first big sale I had, you know, like our average sales were 1500 bucks for a small little advertisement. And I sold a full page and we had like a little bit of a struggling publication. I just remember it was like the day that I, I put my two weeks in, uh, six months into this job, sold a, uh, a full page. And it was just, you know, uh, I was excited to be leaving that company, but at the same time, I was shocked that I had actually done it. How, so you have, you have a marketing background and expertise more than, more than sales maybe even. I got this yeah. question last night at my Thursday night sales event and the question we've covered it around a little bit before, but um, how do we get marketing and sales to be more aligned? What are some quick wins to get them more aligned? Yeah, it's, it's not a CRO. You know, I know that much in, in most companies. I don't know if you guys have, to, so what I have, I mean, you can go down to, compensation and metrics, I think is, is the most, uh, is the best thing that you can do. The VP of sales and VP of marketing, especially the VP of marketing is driving towards revenue at some level. So you're talking um, about, you're talking about giving them a quota. Do you have your marketing VP or whoever runs marketing for you with a, with a revenue quota? We don't have one, but no, uh, no, um, we don't, but, I don't know if I would go quota in the same way that a VP of sales has quota, uh, but I would absolutely do bonuses on it. Uh, you know, I think the biggest problem is, you know, if you, if I think of a lot of the consulting clients we work with, it's just to help with like board prep and other things like that. And the measurements that marketing is using CEOs don't necessarily understand. So they just keep saying more leads, things like more leads. We got all of these leads, but at the end of the day, nobody, you can try and figure out where they came from and was it good money spent, but like is 20% more leads good? I don't know if you do a bunch of events, you're going to get more leads, but they may never turn into pipeline. I don't know. I mean, it, it, I think a lot of it comes down to the higher. I mean, it really like, you know, I'm not putting comp plans together at that level, but Boy, if if the CMO and the head of head of sales are on the same page, you know. So you said that a lot of times CEOs don't know 
what marketing should be doing. So what is marketing doing? Because I have a very different opinion. I, you know, and I, I think Scott's aligned with me is that I actually think marketing should be compensated a portion, a piece based on revenue, right? Not based on MQLs, right? It's based on MQLs. It's like the, the marketing person gets to set their own compensation structure, right? And so it feels a little yeah. light in my world. Oh, Oh, for sure. And you'll, you know, they'll never get into the weeds enough to know what MQLs, you know, like that's not something typically, I think a CEO typically wants to dive into. So I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you on that front. Um, but it's, it, it is challenging, right? Because the, the, the marketers only have, you know, so much of a view, they get tons of requests from lots of different places. Um, and at the end of the day, they're just trying to show uptick, you know, they're just trying to show what they're doing is working because it's many times tough to tell in a marketing organization why exactly things are working. There's like a little bit of, a little bit of art and a little bit of science to it. How do you, so then how do you help align that right in your world right if you're running the organization how would you then create greater alignment between sales and marketing from that perspective i mean objectives right i think we've talked a little bit about comp you know i think at least from what i see as these groups are coming together and whether it's a quarterly review or a monthly review um you know what's actually what's actually being measured. Like I, you know, for marketing, it can't just purely be the, the end number, but it, you know, a lot of it just, just comes down to like, uh, you know, I, I get it that it's revenue, but a lot of it just, you know, there's so much art behind it. It's almost like it's, it's tough to d describe. Um, everybody knows when they're in an org and the marketing team is working really well, like when that is working well, Everyone knows when marketing and sales are completely separate. But What's it's, that like? Because I've never worked somewhere where marketing was just dominating and things were going super well. Well, it never feels like it's going well. It's like when you're in a sales org, like the companies I've been a part of that are like really taking off, they feel like a mess internally. But if you take a step back a year or two and you look at what happened, you're like, oh my gosh, we sold a lot. Or oh my gosh, we grew. Yeah, but I I've been a part of that many times, but, but, you know, selfishly, like, I think I was the one leading the charge and, and, and creating that momentum and revenue. I mean, you're talking about having, you know, inbound leads and, and having like a really dominant marketing uh, department. I, I, I can almost guarantee you that at least half of the audience is sitting here like I am going, what the fuck is that like? Because I don't know what an inbound lead is at all. I've been cold calling and outbounding and prospecting and doing everything myself, you know, for, for 20, 20 years. So I'm just, I'm just trying to think like, what, what does that look like when marketing is bringing in so many leads and that's where all the sales momentum is coming from? How do you, how do you create, yeah. how can somebody replicate that? Well, but I think part of the problem is, and I mean, when I was early in my sales career, I mean, everyone would hire salespeople to create demand, right? Like you're, I need an extra account executive because we need an extra million dollars. But like, if Which we, I think we can all I, agree it's the dumbest thing to ever do. Account yeah, executives don't generate business. Yeah. Right? yeah like, 
uh, and if you're at that level, I mean, inside sales teams could too, but I would much rather, I mean, it's what, I mean, we're such, we're small, so it doesn't, but like we, all we did was invest in inbound marketing, right? And paid advertising over the last two years. That's all we've done. And at some point there'll be too many sales for me to handle them and we'll need to hire someone else. But I think it comes down fundamentally to how they're, how they're set up. I mean, if you have a bunch of salespeople on your team and you're getting no inbound leads, you're uh, like something is off, whether it's your marketing leadership or something else. I mean, that's a, they shouldn't be hired if there's no demand. Totally right? agree. Completely agree. What, um, what are some of the mistakes you've made in your, in your career, right? As you've built an organization, just sort of shifting a little bit, um, you know, we always love to share our, our, our stub toe stories so that, you know, hopefully others can, you know, empathize with us and give us some sympathy. Um, at least that's what Scott wants. Or, uh, you know, we can help them avoid some of these challenges. Oh, for, you know, the first eight months of Outbound View, we were priced at a quarter of what it should have been. I mean, we just... Was that on purpose or just because you didn't, you didn't kind of get it right? I don't know, like, I, well, it's because we didn't get it right. I know that much. Um, I just, I looked at what I could make as an outside salesperson, you know, if I wanted to go do that. And I, I just kind of backed my consulting into that. And then you realize that like, I can't take on five consulting companies where I'm really in the weeds at once. And so, okay, if I can only take two, then that needs to be actually triple because now I have other expenses and there's taxes and we have a couple contractors that help with this. And it's just, you know, it took a step back, especially six months in. I was like, is this really worth doing? The answer was no, not, not at the rates I was charging. Yeah. Um, so that, that was, that was a big one. Um, I mean, we've attempted, I would say 15 in, in, three years, 15 different core offerings, like a little bit of this, like we were, it was always inside sales related, but um, because of my marketing background, like I mentioned, like I, I had a very much a tendency to see something that was working really well, try and turn it into an offering, try and do outreach to figure out and see if it would scale, realize that it's a lot more of a pain and then you're two months in. Right. Whereas now we have a decent amount of offerings, but everything behind our offerings are our team wants to do it. We enjoy doing it and we're good at it, you know, and we kind of have, you know, have that frame on anything that we do that's that's new. So, yeah, I mean, we had packaging issues. Our, our website didn't you know look like a one person consulting shop because it, it was, but we were trying to create more of a, just countless dollars wasted on paid advertising i mean there's just so many do you have any um ex experience that you can pass along and tips on on managing the relationship between the head of sales and and somebody like yourself who's sitting in the ceo and founders seat yeah um from a outsourcing perspective or more from a just high level some of the larger companies more, more internally right ceo founder yeah uh, tips to like manage the, the VP of sales, the head of sales, or, or, you know, what, what could, what could VP of sales do to, um, you know, strengthen the relationship with somebody like, like yourself? Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. The, I mean, when I've seen those relationships work really well, it's like every, I mean, everything in leadership, like it, it starts with trust, right? Like there just has to be that trust of going back and forth. I don't know. One thing that I see quite a bit uh, is the VP of sales are kind of left, you know, left alone from a coaching perspective, you know, like they're not getting as much of a coaching uh, feel from anyone. Like the CEO kind of feels like I hired a head of sales and I don't want to step on their toes and micromanage. Um, and so I feel like they're left alone a lot. You know, it's just like, it's their number to go get, you know, they're always managing too many people. Uh, and so uh, genuine coaching, whether it's with them or hiring an executive coach, like helping that person along, I think uh, is something not many organizations do. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. <clears throat> I think that that would be, be super beneficial. And I think as, as a head of sales, like, I, I want to be left alone in terms of, you know, building out my, my sales team and running that process and everything. But there's, there's a lot of things I don't want to be left alone about. Like I, I would love, you know, further coaching on leadership and, and, and management. I'd love to learn more about, uh, you know, the fundraising process, for example. I'd love to learn more about, you know, how to, how to run like the PL and, and why we're spending money in certain places versus the others and what's going on and how are you prioritizing product development versus this, that, and the other. Um, and that type of coaching, more like business and entrepreneurial coaching from CEO to VP of sales, I think it'd be extremely valuable. And, and I think it's absolutely lacking overall. Yeah. But you always hear, you know, from the CEO, like, oh, this is because of the board or this happened because of the board, or this is our number now, like now it's on top of your head, but they're not overly involved in how it got to that number or anything else. I mean, as much communication there and involvement in, uh, obviously there's gonna be some from board prep and those things, but yeah, to, from an entrepreneur perspective, here's why we're doing this, here's what we signed up for, here's why we signed up for it, you know, just a little bit more of the why behind all of the stuff that sits on top of the VP of sales head, you know. What, um, I, I want to shift on you and people are, who are listening won't know it, but I'd love for you to describe the three pictures hanging behind you and just the symbolism of what they mean for you. Like I always, I always like to hear what motivates someone or, or inspires somebody else. For sure. So, uh, there's an artist in Lincoln, Nebraska that my wife ran across. Um, she was doing some stuff for a, a nonprofit. And this guy creates art on newspapers or music sheets. So he would take a music sheet from that artist and then hand draws. And it's mostly just black and white, kind of their, you know, their face. So the three pictures, and they don't go together that, that much, right? There's Warren Buffett. Uh, there's two things that are like, I've never been overly big in investment and those types of things. Being from Nebraska originally, Warren Buffett's just everywhere doing awesome things. But he talked in such plain language and it made such perfect sense to me when he would speak about, you know, thinking long term and just all of, you know, everything. And so I've always just, you know, uh, always thought a lot of, uh, of Warren Buffett. The other two, uh, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson, they're just the two, like, I love, I love country music. 
Um, and they're just cool. Like, I mean, there's nothing more to them than like the pictures are really cool. Um, so as I was redoing the office, my wife and I were looking at some from this artist and I was like, yes, for sure on the Warren Buffett, uh, Johnny Cash, I love. And then the Willie Nelson picture, I think it's just like, I just like it. I think it's cool. But it's funny. I think your point is, you know, what you said about Warren Buffett of keeping it plain and simple. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a huge country music fan, but I certainly know Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash. But that's also part of the appeal of their music, right? At least for me, is that it's yeah. pretty straightforward. It's plain and simple. You know what the problem is, right? <laughs> you know what it is. And so I, I see that theme sort of running through that, at least my interpretation of you. Um, and I like that. Like, I like that. That is kind of what our business needs to be. It does not need to be as complex as we want to make it. Oh, I know. What's it? You know, I, we just, I talk a lot about marketing speak. Yeah. Because everyone's like high level and marketing optimization and this and that. And uh, a lot of times I just take messaging to my wife who I, she, I think she still believes I'm in software sales from like our, the first time that uh, uh, when we were dating and got married. But I'm like, what does this mean to you? Like, wh what do you think this means? And if she's like, she can't describe it, then we just walk away and start over. Um, so yeah, it, it needs to be at an eighth grade level. You, like it needs to make sense. So when you proposed to her, did you have to sort of break it down that way? Like, like I hope you understand what it means to marry me. Like that's, you know. I Yeah, I'm the most plain, just, you know, uh, plain guy. You're going to have to uh, support me from an, you know, ongoing perspective to make sure that I keep dumbing things down. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I have to dumb things down for me, not for other people. Like that's like it's part of my own ability to just sort of uh, move forward in life. So yeah, uh, Scott knows this about me. I'm like, Scott, you got to break that down for me. Like that's not, I, I'm not getting that big picture. I do the same thing. I purposely keep it super simple. So other people, have to come down to my level so <laughs> it's a safety thing there for me it's yeah. just my first boss is a guy that i've worked for him twice done consulting for him uh at a couple organizations as well like i remember he would always write back messages i'd write him this long thing we need this you're coming on a pitch with me like this or that and he'd just write back like okay or his he was always one to two sentences and at first it annoyed me you know, I was like, I, I'm putting a little bit of time and thought into this. Like you could give a little bit more feedback, but um, it turns out he's just way better at communicating, you know. <laughs> uh, well, we're, uh, we're about to wrap things up over here, Blake. We appreciate you, you spending some time with us. Um, <clears throat> what are some things that uh, Richard and I might be able to, to help you with? We try to end the show by giving back in any way we can, or is there anything that you're working on or initiatives that you're, um, you know, proud to be associated with or just have a random question for us? For sure. Yeah. I mean, we had an aha moment a couple months ago with a new offering that I think every B2B company should be doing, not necessarily through us. They should be doing it on their own, but we've been helping companies track down people who have left their existing customers. And so you work, your company's IBM, you work with the VP of sales in one of the groups, he moves on, you lose track of them. And it is the absolute lowest hanging fruit, uh, you know, for reaching out to people. 
You're talking about call tracking, tracking an executive who moves, so a, a buyer at one org who moves to a different org. Yep, yep. Uh, and what we see with it is just uh, every company should be doing it. And so we call it past view. We do the research. Sometimes we do the outreach. Uh, but we have a cool guide that just walks somebody through. If you're not doing this, here's exactly what you should do. Here's your filters. Here's what you should uh, go through. Because if I'm in, you know, outside sales or inside sales, and you're not doing this, it's the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, so yeah, uh, love, love to have have you guys, you know, spread the word on it. Is that some? Is that something that you guys are giving away somewhere for free on your on your website or? Yep. Yep, I'll uh, I'll send you guys the link. That's oh. yeah, it's just a step by step guide, not gated by any. You know, you don't have to give your email. It's just there. Use it. Use it immediately, and you'll get incredible Great. results. Yeah, well, we'll Richard and I will try to throw some support behind that and and push the push the word out and and uh, and spread that spread that around. That that sounds like a really good good resource. I I know that I agree with you. Every org could use that you know, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. It's just super yeah, valuable. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's been fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Blake. Tell, tell James, thanks for, uh, for referring you in and, and giving us a chance to talk to you. Yeah. We're about ready to chat after this. So we'll do. All right. Catch you later. Have a good weekend. All right. Thanks guys.